Good morning. Hope everyone can hear me okay. Uh, today, Frida Greenbaum was not able to join us, but uh, we're going to fill in as best we can. I do not want to neglect to mention a couple of important things. First of all, we wish our dear friend Rabbi Yechel Nakdim and Rafuash Lema. He's undergoing a procedure this morning, and uh, we hope that everything goes smoothly. And uh -huh. wish Rafuah to Yechel Moshe Ben Sara. In addition, uh, right before we begin uh, the Parsha class, I just wanted to mention that uh, this Shabbos, I'm eagerly looking forward to visiting with several of you in the young Israel of Val Harbor Surfside area uh, for a special Shabbaton that we are doing this week with several uh, different uh, talks that I'll be delivering uh, and some meals that we'll be attending together. And I very much look forward to that. And I want to thank all the organizers of that which of course includes uh, Mrs. Frida Greenbaum, Mrs. Tammy Atias, and Rabbi Yechiel Nakdimin, and others. And lastly, I should mention that this Sunday is our annual yeshiva dinner. And I very much hope that everyone who is in town uh, will be able to attend. We absolutely look forward to having you there. Um, if you have not yet received the invitation or sign up, uh, there will be an invitation with a link uh, posted to our chat. We'd love you to join us. It is year 49 of the Yeshiva project that my parents began back in 1974. And we are excited uh, for this 49th year as it is a prelude to the upcoming 50th anniversary dinner. Okay, today we are going to be discussing Parshas Vayishlach and the title for today's class is Building perspective, and grit. This month, the month of Kislev, is sponsored by Alex and Chava Man and family in honor and appreciation of all the women learning initiatives in presidential estates. Uh, the women of presidential are very much the building blocks of that community. I've been involved with that uh, group for many, many years. It's an honor to know the Man family, and they are doing great work along with several of our other friends in that community in spreading Torah and raising themselves and the entire community to learning Torah, to closeness with Hashem, and to all meaningful things. A very special honor this week to mention and uh, celebrate that this week is dedicated to the birthday of David Mann. Mazal Tov. We wish him bracha, haslacha, simcha, finding everything that he is looking for in his life. Hashem should fulfill the requests of his heart, and may Hashem keep him and his family and loved ones safe, along with the rest of Pal Yisrael at this Ace Sarah. Mazel Tov on the birthday. I think it's very important that in addition to keeping all of our problems and difficulties in mind, we also continue to keep in mind all reasons that we have to celebrate. I don't know about all of you, but every day that goes by, where another crisis does not occur beyond that which we are already dealing with is a day that I also celebrate. And on top of that, to celebrate birthdays and happy occasions, I think is very, very appropriate because this is part of our life mission as well. Having said that, we do continue to grapple with our emotions and rumination, right? All this thinking that so many of us are doing during this ongoing crisis that began just under two months ago 
on October 7th. It's hard to believe that it's almost a full 60 days. One of the undercurrents of many of my peers and their thinking is that they are frankly less concerned for their own personal safety and security and are instead rather fearful for the next generations, those aged around 40 and younger. It seems that to many of us, we think in terms of the short-term future being as not so bad, but the long-term future being quite devastating because we are all witnessing the unraveling of the world around us. So therefore, the current difficulties, such as anti-Semitism, financial instability, general fear-mongering, tumultuous politics, which is occurring in many countries, some of us, again, in my peer group at least, are not seeing as urgently problematic as they might appear. Personally, I am not so certain. I am not clear on the order of events that are yet to follow. Regardless, it is clear that over the last several decades, we are all witness to a major societal decline in many arenas. Some of the most disturbing areas include severe loneliness, the continuing breakdown of normal family structures, the emergence and societal acceptance of crazy and even obscene ideologies. Plus, we have widening chasms between people, both in personal relationships, in politics, and just different mindsets with seemingly no paths of real resolution. Simple question we ought to ask ourselves is, do we think that our current younger generation is better equipped than us to handle and solve these major issues that we've all been seeing? For me, the answer is an obvious and painful one. No, no way. Most of us do not have confidence that the younger generations coming up have more resolve, more capability, more determination, more ability to deal with all the problems that are both festering, growing, and looming ever larger. So, for those of us that care deeply about our children and our grandchildren, and ergo their children and their grandchildren, Right? We would like our children to have a good experience, not only with their children, but their grandchildren as well. Just like we want to have a good experience with our grandchildren or, dare we say, even great-grandchildren. So for all of those, and myself included, that care deeply about these people and these future generations, we need to ask ourselves if there is anything we can possibly do to help them become more prepared for the extreme challenges that they are likely facing. As we progress through our Torah discussion today, I am going to suggest that we do see from this week's Parsha, Parsha Svayishlach, clear messaging relating to self-development and parenting that may require many of us to make a paradigm shift. In specific, we Jews have a unique responsibility as relates not only to parenting, but to building resolve and grit in our entire nation 
because we alone in the world, out of all the peoples and nations in the world, we alone were entrusted by Hashem with a national mission. This mission can be simply described as follows. We must remind ourselves and our fellow Jews that being Jewish is the privilege to be the people responsible to bring the messages of objective truths, God's wisdom, loving kindness, morality, and true human rights and dignity to all mankind. And for those who can even think or imagine to see fit referring to the state of Israel as either an apartheid, a racist, a colonial state are just completely wrong. And it's a false ideology that has unfortunately gained traction over the last several decades when the complete opposite is not only true now, that has always been the case. And this indeed is the mission of the Jewish people. So based on all of this, right, and specifically this perspective of the role of Jews in the world, our objective in today's class is to glean wisdom from the Torah as to how we can indeed help ourselves, and even more so, how we can assist the next upcoming generations to develop the grit and perseverance necessary to fulfill our national mission. So let's begin by looking at an outline of some of Parsha's Hayishlach and two overview questions. When I say some of the Parsha, I refer specifically to mostly the first half or two thirds of the Parsha. The Parsha begins with Yaakov sending messengers or angels to Esau and offering to Esau basically a demonstration of remonstration of trying to bring peace between the two of them, and that he wants to find favor in Esau's eyes. The messengers return with the very clear understanding that Esau is coming to attack Yaakov with 400 men. Yaakov becomes very frightened, and he sets up two different camps so that if Esau will attack one camp, the other camp will be able to escape. Yaakov also davens to Hashem, and he says that he is diminished from all the good and kindness that Hashem has done for him. But he nonetheless turns to Hashem and says, Hashem, please save me from Esav. I, I came here with nothing to Syria, to Padan Aram, and now I'm leaving as two camps of women and children and flocks, etc. And in addition, Yaakov sends, sets up various animal gifts in different groups, in front of Esav, so that Esav will be mollified by the time Esav and Yaakov meet up. That night, Yaakov decides to cross over the river in the middle of that night, and he takes his, his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 children, and he crosses all of his possessions across a river, and Yaakov is left alone, and he ends up wrestling with, according to most opinions, an angel. Whether it's a person or an angel, he wrestles with him, and Yaakov's thigh is moved, is jostled out of place, and Yaakov eventually asks for a blessing from this angel, and he blesses Yaakov, and he tells Yaakov that his name will indeed become Yisrael. 
Now, I mentioned 11 children before. We're going to get to that later. That Rashi asks, were there not 12 children? Rashi explains that Dina was actually put in a box. We're going to come back and discuss that. Yaakov then lifts his eyes and he sees that that Esav is coming and he prepares his wives and children to bow in front of Esav. They do so, including his own prostrations in front of Esav. And Esav basically says, I don't need anything that you have. I have a lot. You can keep what you have, he says to Yaakov. Yaakov says, no, I insist. I want you to take this gift from me. I have everything that I need. And he urges him and Esav actually takes the gift. Then Esav says, let's go travel together, to which Yaakov says, listen, my children cannot keep up at a fast pace on a journey. You go ahead, and uh, perhaps eventually I'll meet up with you. And uh, as we know, Esav goes to Seir, Yaakov goes to Sukkos, where he builds a home, calling the name of that bias, the name of that home, Sukkos. Then Yaakov comes to Shechem, and the Torah describes that Yaakov at this point after having been in Sukkot for whatever period, Yaakov comes intact, the word Shalem, to the city of Shechem, which is in Eretz Israel, and he buys the property there, and Yaakov sets up an altar there, and he calls in the name of Hashem. Then we have the tragic story of what seems to be the abduction and violation of Dina, which is all the more painful given the current events, and Yaakov hears of this violation, and so do the brothers, and they strike a deal ultimately with Shechem and Hamor, because Shechem actually wants to take Dina as a wife. They strike a deal regarding circumcision, that if the people of Shechem do in fact circumcise, then they will give Dina to um, Shechem. Now there's a very complex storyline that's going on here that I'm glossing over that we probably will not get into today. So another time on this very incredible story and the bargain that they strike. And then of course we know the brothers of Yaakov attack, I'm sorry, of Dina attack Shechem and wipe out most of the city. And at the end, Yaakov kind of chastises them uh, for doing so, to which they say, but can our sister be treated like a Zona, like a harlot? And that's closed curtain in terms of the storyline. That's the last thing that is said directly in the Torah about this story. So we have obviously very incredible Parsha that's uh, discussing some very complicated topics. And I just wanted to do that overview because these, these are the general topics that we will be discussing now. So here are two overview questions. Question number one, from the outset of the parasha, it's clear that Yaakov is preparing for war. Now it seems that Yaakov's plan is for himself, for Yaakov himself and his children to fight Esau if necessary. Well, given the fact that all of his children are between the ages of six and 12, it seems rather inconceivable that Yaakov and his family could realistically fight a war against Esau and 400 experienced soldiers. It becomes all the more difficult if you understand that the 400 men were actually leaders, each one of them, of their own 
legion of troops, because then you're not only talking about 400 men, you're talking about 400 sets of soldiers. So the question is, how could Yaakov invite such a bleak prospect that would likely end in his family's utter decimation? Why not simply go on the run immediately? Surely at least some of them, right, some of them we would expect could find refuge at Yitzchak's home. But instead, Yaakov chooses to stick it out, potentially fight what's sure to be a devastating battle. Maybe he has a hope that he can mollify Esau, as does in fact end up happening, but it seems quite the enormous risk. And the question is, why take that risk? Very simple question, but I think one that's not often addressed. Number two, overview question, is how can we possibly understand that Yaakov and his family would suffer such a terrible tragedy as the abduction and violation of Dina? Surely the righteousness of Yaakov and his wives, along with seemingly the children themselves, plus the fact of Hashem's care and the different promises that Hashem explicitly stated to Yaakov, that should carry some significance and weight that one would have thought that Dina would be protected from such a horrible, horrible act. But yet, this is what happens, and it's terrible, and following that is the war that Yaakov's children wage against Shechem. Very difficult to understand why such a thing would happen. So these are our two overview questions, and that's really what we're going to begin with to start our conversation and answer. If we look at the end of Parshas Vayetze, we have a few incredible and interesting things in that the deal that Yaakov strikes with Lavan is quite amazing. And it begins with a really nice question that was asked uh, to me this past Shabbos by Mordechai Atias. He asked me the following question. Some of you know him as the Mohel or Mati Atias. His question is like this. Hashem appears to Lavan in a dream when Lavan is in pursuit of Yaakov. And Hashem says to Lavan, be careful to talk to Yaakov mitov adra. In other words, don't speak to Yaakov from either good or bad. That's uh, seemingly the explanation of Hashem's statement to Lavan. Let me just get you the chapter and verse. It's chapter 31, sentence 24. Hashem came to Lavan in a dream, and he said, guard yourself lest you speak with Yaakov from good until evil. Now, seemingly what that means is don't talk to Yaakov. Don't have anything to do with him. Turn tail and run. Get away from Yaakov. That's a simple way to understand Hashem's warning to Lavan. But instead, Lavan pursues Yaakov. He camps near him. And he then chastises Yaakov and says, what did you do? You stole my heart. You took away my children like captives. You didn't even give me the chance to kiss my sons and my daughters. Look what you did. Now, really, I would want to do something bad to you, but Hashem appeared, your God, God of your fathers appeared to me and said, be careful not to speak with Yaakov from good or bad. So Lavan actually quotes Hashem telling him, don't speak good or bad while he's 
posturing and quite maliciously chastising Yaakov. So the obvious question what the Mordechai Atias asked is, I thought Lavan wasn't supposed to talk to Yaakov. Lavan should have just turned around and went home and let it go. So I'd like to suggest that the answer perhaps to Lavan's question, I'm sorry, to, to uh, Mordechai Atias's question, is that Hashem wasn't really intending to tell Lavan, don't speak to Yaakov. Hashem was telling Lavan, make sure that you do not have an ongoing intentional relationship with Yaakov, either a good one or a bad one. Meaning, when Hashem said, don't speak with Yaakov from good until bad, what he's saying is, don't invoke in your confrontation with Yaakov a premise or a suggestion that you will continue to have a relationship with Yaakov. Don't make any suggestion. Don't make any such offer. And indeed, what happens is Lavan looks for his gods. He doesn't find them. And then Yaakov and Lavan agree to a permanent parting of the ways. That's actually the way the story ends, which to me is extremely instructive. But why is it relevant to our conversation? Very simple. All of this is a tremendous learning lesson for Yaakov's children. And in fact, in no coincidence, when Yaakov makes the suggestion and he says, I'm sorry, when Lavan makes the suggestion and he says, everything is mine, but let's now make a covenant between me and between you. And Hashem will be a witness between me and between you. Yaakov takes a stone and he lifts it up as a monument and he calls his brothers and says to them, gather stones and they take stones and they build a mound of stones and they eat there. Well, who are his brothers? Says Rashi, his brothers are his children. And this is a very key Rashi for us because Rashi says that his brothers are his children because they were his brothers coming close to Yaakov and supporting him in time of trouble and war. And here is Yaakov educating his children in the process of their developing into a nation with a mission. And unfortunately, lesson number one is that they will have no relationship with their maternal grandfather. That is over. Why? Why is it over? Okay, Lovin is a bad guy. Lovin has bad intentions. But why do they have to have this covenant that they can have nothing to do with Lovin? And as we pointed out, there can be no continuing relationship with Lovin as Hashem, according to our understanding, is telling Lovin himself that he needs to accept. And the answer is, as Yaakov says, Elohei Avraham ve'elohei nachar yishpetu ve'neinu, Elohei avihem, chapter 31, sentence 53. The God of Avraham versus the God of Nachor, says Rashi, the God of Avraham is holy. The God of Nachor is mundane because our God, which is the God of Avraham, who is the brother of Nachor from which Lavan comes, that is the distinguishing factor between the family that is the dynasty of Avraham and the family that is the dynasty of Nachar. The family that is the dynasty of Nachar are worshipers 
of idols, of false ideologies. We cannot be family with those people. That is lesson number one in going to battle that Yaakov trains his children immediately from the outset, from their very young age, of ages six to 12, we need to understand that we are in a war against false ideologies and you need to be ready for war. That's what it's all about. That's why Yaakov refers to them as his brothers. That's why he asks them to participate in this covenant. Can you imagine you're telling your children, cut off your grandfather. That's what he's telling them. That's what they're doing. That's what they're committed to do in their wisdom and in their greatness. Now, our parsha is the parsha of Asa, meaning parsha of Yishlach. And here too, Yaakov is preparing his children to understand that their mission as being descended from Avraham is specifically going to require that just like they fought against Lavan or were prepared to fight against Lavan and instead made a covenant with him to actually cut him off, so too they need to be prepared to fight against Asa. Because guess what, people? Asa is coming. This is not a war you can't ignore. You can't just run away home to Yitzchak hoping that maybe some of you will escape. The war has already begun and we need to confront the reality of that war head on. And if it's a war that's happening, it means it's a war that Hashem wants us to fight. Just like Yaakov is telling his children, you cannot escape, we cannot escape. The war has begun. It is here, not it is going to come. It is here. They are coming to get us. We have to be prepared to fight, to daven, to bribe, all the things that Yaakov does. But his message, which is what we're focusing on today, his message to his children is be ready. It is your responsibility. Is it, it is our responsibility. And indeed, it is the Jewish mission and even if it is against our family, against our cousins, if the false ideology is threatening our existence, we have to be prepared to fight no matter how old we are, no matter how prepared we are for battle as soldiers and weapons and everything else, we have to be ready to fight. It's really, really difficult because one would think, okay, run away for now. Let's wait till the next time. Says Yaakov, there's no real escaping Esau. There's only fighting Esau. So we're better equipped to fight him now, standing together with me, Yaakov, also leading in battle, and me, Yaakov, supporting you, and the two camps, one supporting the other, as we'll explain in a moment, It's that's our better option than to hope for a safer day later when it's likely that we'll be depleted and who knows what then our chances will be. Now, incredibly, Rashi tells us that Yaakov prepared for three things, as we all know, for prayer and for presence and for battle. So for prayer, it's very clear. The Torah says Yaakov turned to Hashem and said, save me from Asa. 
And for presents, it's very clear. The Torah says, hey, look, there are various things uh, that Yaakov's, uh, different groups of animals that Yaakov sets up with his servants. What's his preparation for battle? So most of us would say his preparation for battle is dividing into two camps. However, the division worked, which is another very interesting point. Whatever it was, the preparation was dividing into two camps. But incredibly, when Rashi says that Yaakov prepared for war, he does not bring the phrase that says, and Yaakov divided into two camps, or divided everything he had into two camps, and says, instead, says Rashi, his preparation for war is the phrase, it will be the remaining camp will escape. Why does Rashi say that the preparation for war is the cause of the preparation for war, right? The preparation for war is dividing into two camps. The result will be that hopefully one will escape. The preparation is not that hopefully one will escape. The preparation is to divide into two camps. But from here, we learn another major lesson and another incredible thing that we need to give over to the next generation. Because the mission is a collective one, a national one, one that we are all responsible for one another, and it's not a mission of survival, it's actually a mission of the Jewish cause, which we'll explain, we need to be ready to fight to the death so that the other ones can survive. The real preparation for the war is not dividing into camps. It's dividing into camps with the intention that we will fight our darndest, even if all it means is that the other group will survive. Because then it's not about our survival, it's about the survival of the nation and the purpose that it serves. So therefore, says Rashi, the mindset that the other camp will escape, that is the preparation for battle. That willingness to fight to that kind of death so that the mission can live on is what the preparation for war is all about. Now, as it applies today, we have to remember that wherever we Jews are in the world, we're fighting for the rest of the Jews wherever they are in the world. And currently, so many of Achenu Kolbeis Yisrael are putting their lives on the line in Eretz Yisrael. But we have to realize that because all Jews are in danger, not only are those Jews fighting for us, we have to have the mindset that we would do the same for them, which means that we have to be living in America or England or France or Argentina or all the other population centers of Jews across the world, not only with the mindset of, oh, we care, which hopefully we do, but always need to do more. We care about what's happening in Eretz Israel. We have to be getting committed. We have to be living as though we are in war with that kind of determination, with that kind of energy, with that kind of strategic thinking and planning. And mm. what can we do where we are, not just to protect ourselves, but to protect the Jewish nation and the mission of the Jewish nation. After the successful appeasing meeting with Esav, the first thing that Yaakov does actually is build a home. 
recognizing that now that his children have been successful in surviving and detaching from Madan and surviving from Esau, now we have to gather as a family in a home where we build ourselves, where we heal ourselves, where we prepare ourselves for all the future battles that are sure to still come. That's the idea of spending time in Sukkot. He builds a house for himself there. That's actually the first house that Yaakov builds, because if you read the sentences carefully, when he was with Lavan, they all lived in Lavan's house. That's how Lavan refers to it. That's how Yaakov refers to it. That's Lavan's house. But incredibly, despite living in Lavan's house, Yaakov has such a, in, uh, an amazing rapport and bond with his children, with his wives, that they are all completely aligned in a sense of national mission. And by the way, that's why the Torah refers to them as Ha'am. Vayachat says Ha'am Asher Yaakov divides the nation that's with him. They've become a nation already. Just after detaching from Lavan, they've become a nation. Yaakov is very, very successful in building that sense of national mission and purpose. So we then pointed out that then we have this horrible tragedy that occurs. How could it be? How could it actually happen? Especially the way that we're learning and describing the success of Yaakov and his children, that such a terrible thing would happen to Yaakov's only daughter to be abducted and violated. So we pointed out that when the Torah describes that that night in preparation for Esau's battle, that Yaakov takes his 11 children across along with his possessions, that the Torah says 11 children, even though he had 12 children. So that's Rashi's question. Rashi says, what do you mean? Where was Dina? Because obviously in a group of 12, if you have one missing, the natural uh, inclination is to make the obvious delineation. You have 11 males and one girl. So therefore, yeah, Rashi says, and where was Dina? Answer, that Yaakov put Dina in a box and locked it in front of her so that Esau would not look at her, says Rashi in continuing. And therefore Yaakov was punished because he prevented his brother because perhaps his brother, he held back his brother Esau because perhaps his brother would have turned to the good. And instead Dina fell into the hand of Shechem. It's a stunning commentary of Rashi. It's one of the most difficult of Rashi commentaries to understand. First of all, Rashi saying very clearly that Dina falling into the hands of Shechem and Hamor, that is a punishment to Yaakov. Now, to say that that's harsh is a major understatement. Second of all, it's also saying that Yaakov's punishment is coming because he prevented Esau from becoming good. Really, you're going to put that on Yaakov because he doesn't want his daughter Dina to be looked at by Esau so that Esau should not desire her. You're going to say that Yaakov prevents Esau from becoming who he can become? This is what you would call Shidduchim 101. You know, you read the resume and you say, oh, it's Esau. Yeah, yeah, I don't think that one's for my daughter. Right? Obviously, nobody would say, hey, this is a great idea. Let's set up Dina with Esau. And for that, Yaakov's punished that this horror happens to his daughter, Dina, it's unconscionable. But I have a different question, a very simple question, a reading, a text question. The Torah says that Yaakov took across his 11 children. Says Rashi, where was Dina? Answers Rashi, she was in a box. My question is, 
how does Dina being in a box answer the question? Even if Dina is in a box, Yaakov took 11 children across who were not in the box, one across that was in a box, 11 plus one is 12. So the Torah still shouldn't say 11 children, the Torah should say 12, because it's still 12, even if she's in a box. How's Rashi even answering this question? The whole question, this whole Rashi seems to be built on this idea that where was Dina? Well, she didn't disappear. She wasn't dead and gone. So how could it be that it's still 11 children if he took across 12 children? So I suggest in order to answer the question, what we have to face as parents, and it's a kind of a stunning revelation based on this Rashi. One thing is clear, according to the rabbis. Dina had some ability, potentially, to influence Esau for the good. You have to say that, because otherwise, what does it mean that Yaakov prevented Esau from turning to the good? Obviously, it's through Dina. So somehow, Dina could do something that Yaakov couldn't, that Yitzchak could not, that Rivka could not, to influence Esau for the good. However you want to explain that, that means that Dina is an unbelievable, I mean, literally unbelievable influencer, if we can use today's terminology. Okay. Therefore, Yaakov should let Dina marry uh, Esau? Of course not. But what Yaakov should do is turn to Dina and say, look, Dina, you have unbelievable abilities. I mean, you get it. You understand what the Jewish mission is all about. Nothing could be better for the Jewish mission than to bring Esau back to the fold. Kol kol Yaakov and Yedayim Yedei Esau. But you can't marry him. I mean, that's just insanity. But perhaps if he gets interested in you, you can bring him along slowly. I can help you to navigate if Esau is really changing for the better or not. And maybe down the line, it's something to consider. But we shouldn't just rule it out because your quality, Dina, as a woman of influence is something spectacular. That's what Yaakov should have done. But Yaakov did not do that. Instead, Yaakov locked her in a box because he was afraid that Dina would not rise to that challenge because let's be honest, Dina's a young child. She might be influenced by Esav. I can't take the chance that Dina is gonna go along with Esav. Esav's wives have been idolaters. I can let Dina take that chance? Says the Torah, you have to let your children face their challenges. Your job as a parent is not to prevent your children from having challenges. It's not to protect them from all the evils that exist in the world and cloister them and hide them and hope, 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 hope that they will never be confronted by anything negative in their lives. Guess what? That's impossible. The evil exists. It exists in the streets of America. It exists in the streets of Eretz Israel. It exists everywhere. Your job is to help your children learn how to handle their challenges. In the moment that Yaakov locks Dina in the box, he's not treating her like a child. That's not a yelled that you are nurturing and raising. That's a person that you are holding back and preventing them from their true development. In that moment, Yaakov has 11 children, not 12. Because he's not treating Dina like his child. Now, I know that that's a bitter pill for us parents to swallow. 
because we're all afraid on behalf of our children of all the evils that may be coming their way, whether it's the personal Gates or Hara challenges or God forbid the rising hatred that we are currently experiencing as a nation. And we want to protect them from that. We don't want them to have to think about those things. We don't want to have one second. We God forbid don't want them to have to suffer any of that. But it's coming. It's here. Our job is not to hide them from it. You can't hide from Asa, and you can't hide from the challenges of a child's personal self-development, not knowing which way things are going to turn out. If God forbid it's off the derech or a different way. That's the message that the Torah is like a lightning bolt teaching us right here. On In the moment that Yaakov takes Dina across the river in a box, she's just a possession. She's not a child. Why? Because he has prevented her from facing the challenge of her development that she needs to have. And unfortunately, the punishment that of which the rabbis speak is kind of a natural self-evolving development. Dina goes out looking. Dina. Dina goes out looking for some fulfillment of who she is. And instead of being guided by Yaakov through whatever that challenge was, she's going out on her own. Because unfortunately, Yaakov has constricted Dina from facing their challenge. So that is a major, major lesson for us today in developing perspective and building grit. We don't help our children if we just prevent them from confronting challenges or prevent them from failing. That doesn't help them. It's the opposite. We have to recognize the reality challenges of our children and do our best to assist them in facing them. Now, oftentimes, uh, as a friend told me, you know, we think we know what's best for our children. We tell them our opinion, but we don't really know. I told them, speak for yourself, right? We all like to think that we definitely know what's best for our children. And the older they get, the truth is, the harder it is to know because they have their lives, their internal selves and developing that they need to deal with. All we can really do is try to offer to help them. So helping our children confront and handle their most important challenges instead of protecting them is exactly how to help our children develop perspective and grit because otherwise they don't have to deal with it. They don't have to develop the perseverance. A great phrase that my wife uh, educated our youngest children is called delayed gratification. Right? Instead of instant gratification, we have delayed gratification. And that's incredibly important to teach the children and it's harder and harder when all they need to do is click a button whether it's click the button on the microwave, click the button on the phone, click the button on buy, click the button on Amazon Prime shit. All it is just a click of a button. You got everything done. It's harder and harder to teach our children that that's not real life, meaning that's not the way to confront challenges is by expecting instant, instant solutions and satisfaction and gratification. There is no escaping our destiny as Hashem's nation. And specifically, what it means to be Hashem's nation is to be the people responsible to bring forth messages of objective truths, God's wisdom, loving kindness, morality, and true human rights 
and dignity to all mankind. And I think that simple paragraph, when used as our lens for our purpose as a nation, and are we fighting for that? Are we fighting for the Jewish nation to be able to bring forth messages of objective truths, to bring forth God's wisdom, to bring forth God's messages of loving kindness and morality and true human rights and dignity to all mankind, a lot of questions become more clearly answered. Is that what we are fighting for? Is that what we are teaching our children to get prepared to do and to fight for? So I'll just go to this question that was posted on our chat. Somebody just asked, okay, so do I think we should send our children to college, universities, and campuses where anti-Semitism is so prevalent? So I'll tell you the simple answer. The simple answer is, of course, not. But not because the anti-Semitism is so rampant. It's because the college ideologies are insane. They are completely against truth. The vast majority of colleges are promoting the idea in large numbers of Israel being an apartheid state, of Israel being the aggressors, etc., etc. Now, if you have children that understand the falseness of that, and they are not going to be captive or held sway by those false ideologies, and the purpose of going to college is so that they can somehow, through that education, through that degree, bring the messages of morality and truth and God's wisdom, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to the world, go for it. Absolutely. Now, if you think that that's likely to happen, I think you should maybe, you know, check that question a couple of times. But if that's the fact, okay, absolutely. But we have to be asking that about every situation. Of course, of course, I am not saying that a person should put themselves in danger of their lives in any fashion. But so far, so far, thank God, praise Hashem, thank God, that is by the vast majority of situations in our country, not the case. By presenting as a Jew, we are not necessarily putting our lives in danger, but we do need to be aware of it because it can happen, whether it's in some backwater country where anti-Semitism is completely out of hand, wherever it might be, definitely safety and putting our lives at risk is a high priority and a no-no. But if that's not the case, we should not be at all abashed in proclaiming Hashem's truth, the Jewish people as being responsible to bring these messages and doing everything that we can to spread those messages. So God willing, we'll send some uh, practical applications, but just to mention a few of them briefly, we have delayed gratification is a great message for ourselves and for our children. Because don't forget, everything that we say is something we're trying to help for the next generation is something we need to be improving ourselves, which is why we're in this mess. Delayed gratification, the power of perseverance. We need to suffer the consequences of our actions. We need to learn to take advice. If we want our children to learn to take advice, we need to learn to take advice. And uh, we'll send some more, God willing. Any questions or comments? Uh, yes, Mrs. Kanoff, please unmute. Okay. First of all, thank you so much. Magnificent, wonderful, fantastic, important lecture as per usual, but this one resonates even more. But I would like to add to the fact 
that it wasn't just a child of Yaakov who was in a box. It was specifically the female child of Yaakov who was in a box. And um, there are whole groups of Orthodox Judaism that believes that, quote, putting your child, your female child in some kind of a box is the answer to so many of the ills of society, you know, be that what they call sneas or whatever. And at this point, I would like to have a quick shout out to my grandmother, my grandmother who is no longer with us, a quick shout out to her. We would not, I would not be here if not for the incredible audacity of my mother's mother who forged her own visas for herself and her family and brought them to the Russian authorities to get out of Europe and to get to Shanghai. The Russian authorities looked her up and down and said, this is clearly a forgery, but I can't let somebody like you suffer and stay in Europe. So I'm going to let you and your family through. And to me, female audacity, um, activism, and letting you know, making things happen is just one example of the Torah talking about how female activism is has always been a catalyst for all wonderful things that happen in Torah life and 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 Torah change. So please let this be advocacy for the taking whatever way, shape, or form females are in boxes. Get them out of the boxes and let them lead, please. I think it's definitely um, a fair and just point uh, that based on Yaakov, there is a tendency um, perhaps to do that more to females than to males. I wouldn't necessarily label, you know, specific groups of Judaism, uh, because unfortunately it's also probably true of other groups as well. Uh, but either way, it's a fair point, and we have to be very, very careful about it. Um, also, very often, uh, males are also put into specific boxes. So it's a big problem in general, but I agree with you that from Yaakov, it seems that he definitely had more of an issue with Dina than with the other children. Well, thank you so much. As ever, it's wonderful to share that viewpoint. I'm happy to be to take that information and I'm happy to take all information. It's a wonderful, <laughs> magnificent information and thank you so much. Thank you. And we're happy for you to lead the charge. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. and, and thank Baba Shana who got us out of Europe with yes. four oh, Hashem. And in Japan where Sorry? she negotiated with all the Chinese people. Wow. Um, anybody else with a question or comment today? and Japanese people. Okay. All right. It's been a pleasure, everyone. Look forward to seeing you soon. Don't forget, please, the Yeshiva dinner this Sunday. And if you happen to be in Bell Harbor Surfside, hop on over to the Shul of Young Israel. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. There, is is you. Father lecturing today? Yes. I